morning, friends. <clears throat> it is good to see you this morning, and uh, I pray that your heart is prepared to dive into the Word of God together. The uh, songs we've sung, the scriptures we've heard read, the prayers we've prayed, I pray have been um, preparatory for you to now hear from the Holy Spirit regarding this uh, issue of suffering. Suffering that, that is something that our Savior endured. Suffering is that thing that we each will endure to one degree or another. So just like a, a ball game must include a ball, so a theology of the cross must include suffering. Jesus himself said to take up your cross, right? The Bible has much to say about suffering. The, the commonality of it, the purpose of it, a way to navigate it, and the benefits of it are all addressed in scripture. And that's good news for those of us who will inevitably face suffering in our lifetime. For as much as suffering that exists, there must be a theological reason behind it. And so, as I've called our current pass through Mark 14 through 16, a theology of the cross, I want to see if we can find some theological basis for not only the suffering of Christ, but our suffering as well. I think that's going to be a helpful theology. The biblical concept or meaning behind the word cross is suffering. If you didn't put those two together yet in your mind, uh, Peter told us to follow Christ and his example of suffering. That was in our meditation verse to begin the service. James tells us to count it all joy when you encounter many trials. Paul said in Romans 5, to rejoice in suffering. So this concept of suffering, this concept of the cross, is everywhere in Scripture. And the longer you live, the more you recognize it's a very practical doctrine to understand and embrace. Just as a potter uses the pressure of his hands to shape the clay into a beautiful vessel of great worth, so God uses suffering to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And since suffering is so common and inevitable um, and is spoken of so often in scripture, it seems to me that it would be wise to have a right way to think about it and prepare for it, maybe. So let, let me begin by asking you to participate with me in this portion of the sermon. Uh, how many of you pray better when you're suffering? Raise your hand. How many of you pray better when you're suffering? That is why you suffer. <laughs> right there. Because God knows that the only way that most of us will come to him is with a little pressure. And so he applies pressure to us. And within that pressure comes not only uh, deeper communion and fellowship with our maker and our savior but a substantial growth in personal holiness and a reflection of Christ Jesus 
To give you an idea of how I want to unpack this for you, I'll give you my plan for the next two sermons. I was going to try to do this all in one sermon, but sometime yesterday afternoon I realized this isn't going to happen in one sermon. So uh, today I'm going to preach to you and explain to you the sufferings of Christ and the great benefits they are to us. And I want you to see how and why Jesus suffered the way he did for our benefit. Next week, I'm going to pick up the second half of the sermon um, and we'll call this two-week sermon series The Theology of Suffering. And I want to preach and explain to you why we must endure suffering as well, just as our Savior did, just as the example he set for us. Uh, I want to show you God's purpose in our suffering and, and how we can navigate it and benefit from it. And this ought, to be, this ought to be something that interests every person in the room since our suffering's inevitable, right? So let's begin now by looking at the sufferings of Christ. You'll see this outline in your bulletin. And I, I hope and pray that this will be a great encouragement to you. It is um, not difficult to prove the sufferings of Christ if you believe the Bible. Let me give you some verses that underline this. Hebrews 2.18, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 5.8, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Hebrews 13.12, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. There's a purpose, right? For his suffering, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive. Jesus suffered. There, there's no question about the sufferings of Christ, right? Has anybody ever argued that he didn't really suffer? No. Why? Because it was obvious. His greatest sufferings, though, were focused on his final week of life here on earth, prior to his resurrection at least. Jesus died a violent death. Even though it was voluntary, it was a violent death, wasn't it? Isaiah 53.8 that we just heard read said that Christ was cut off. That sounds involuntary, and yet in John 10, Jesus said that he willingly laid down his life, and it was only him who took his own life, not any other person. So even though it was willingly, it was violent, full of suffering. So let's look at exactly what he suffered. If you have your Bible, I want to ask you to open to Mark 14. Mark chapter 14, and we're going to look at the sufferings of Christ, just a, a quick survey of 14 and 15, so that you can see that we're not way off base here in our theology of the cross as it relates to these last three chapters of the Gospel of Mark, which we're studying. Although I've acknowledged that this is more of a, a topical sermon approach to Mark 14, 15, and 16, yet it remains anchored in the text. So it's a, it's a hybrid sermon series uh, between exposition and topical. You're getting the best of both worlds here. But I want to I show you the sufferings of Christ as recorded by Mark. So in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 55, it says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. 
For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him. And so this suffering, even though at this point it wasn't physical, it was suffering, wasn't it? Turn to verses 64 and 65. The chief priest said, you have heard his blasphemy, false accusation. It was not blasphemy, it was truth. You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death, false accusations. And then here's where it turns physical. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying, prophesy, mocking, more suffering. And the guards received him with blows. They began to beat him up physically. Now look at verses 66 through 72. <clears throat> And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls said of, uh, of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know him nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly, you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Now, how is that suffering of Christ? Well, how would you take it if your closest friend over the past three years said, I have no idea who you are. You, who are you? No. That would cause you some anguish and sorrow and pain, wouldn't it? Yeah. Jesus suffered because his friends and family denied him, betrayed him, walked away in his moment of greatest need. We call that suffering. And now turn to chapter 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound him, that is Jesus, led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the man who could execute him. Verse 11, chapter 15. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And so... There was a conspiracy against Jesus. We call that suffering. It may not all have been physical suffering, but a physical suffering is certainly established. Relational suffering by betrayal, denial, separation. We could go on and look at the intensity of his physical suffering by looking at verses 14 through 32, where it describes Jesus being delivered by Pilate to be crucified, 14 and 15, soldiers that made fun of him and beat him and whipped him and struck him on the head and made him dress up like a clown. And then the actual nailing to the cross, the wooden beams, and being dropped into the hole and the excruciating pain that we've described here to you about his actual crucifixion. Has anybody suffered more than this? 
And then to top it off, we had mental suffering that Jesus explained. It says, Jesus said his soul was greatly troubled. He, he knew what was coming in the details of it and had to mentally prepare for it. And we saw that in the Garden of Eden along with his spiritual suffering as he hung on the cross, being separated from his eternal father and co-equal for a moment unknown to him before this moment. Exceptional suffering. At every level, he suffered. So we have to ask ourselves, why? Why all this suffering? I mean, why not just go take a bullet if he just needs to die? Or, or get hit? Or run over by a chariot? Something less excruciating. But as we think about a theology of the cross, it's critical that we understand why he suffered the way he did. The extent to which he suffered. And this is what I want to explain to you right now. If God is in fact sovereign over all things, which I, I hope and think that I established last week from scripture, or two weeks ago rather, when I discussed meticulous sovereignty, this means if, if he is in fact meticulously sovereign over all things, he is sovereign over suffering, right? That's not, you know, dismissed. It's actually part and under the umbrella of his sovereign control of all things, including your suffering and mine and his son, Jesus Christ. This means that suffering has a purpose and is never wasted for Christ or for you. Suffering, if it is under the sovereign control of God, has a purpose and is never wasted. It's always orchestrated by a loving God to produce intended results. Suffering is never what some would call bad luck or pointless or random. No, as we begin to think about all the suffering that Christ endured and then all the suffering that we will go through inevitably, we need to keep in mind that there is a purpose behind every experience of suffering. As small as it is or as big as it is. And that's hard to do in the midst of suffering, isn't it? It's a lot easier just to complain. I, I failed at that this morning. I got into the car coming, coming to church this morning and I, you know, most of you know I had, my life has been full of surgeries the last two years. And I'm hobbling out to the car, you know, dragging into the thing like Gollum, you know, into our car. And I say to Sherry, this is getting so old. And then I come this morning, I forgot my sermon this morning. I completely forgot it. It's easier to complain, but more beneficial to believe and trust, isn't it? So we must keep in mind that there is a purpose, a loving purpose behind every experience of suffering. And the same that was true for Christ is true for us. He suffered by God's design for specific purposes. We will do the same. Since our focus here is on a theology of the cross, particularly that death instrument on which Jesus died, I want you to see that Christ suffered and died 
there because he, because he had to bear the curse for us. Now, I want you to follow me here. He had to bear the curse for us in his death, and a curse in the law of Moses was attached only to death on a tree. Okay, now this is important theology here. Freddie grasps the significance and the value and the purpose of suffering. So dying on the cross was dying on the wood of a tree. That's what it meant. God said in Deuteronomy 21:23 that cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree or a wooden pole or a wooden cross. The curse of sin entered the human race, how? Through the agency of a tree, didn't it? Yes, that is where the fruit that was sinfully taken by Adam and Eve grew, on a tree. And so the curse of sin entered the human race through this agency of a tree, and to be lifted up and die on a tree is a picture of the death that came into the human race through the tree in the Garden of Eden to which God assigned a curse. All right, cursed, God said, is anyone who dies on a tree or is hanged on a tree. So, first of all, Jesus came to remove the curse from us and the only way to accomplish that was to die on a tree. Jesus needed to be the curse for us, which I established last week when I discussed substitutionary atonement, right? Christ needed to bear all the curses of the moral law that were against us, which took place on the tree of Calvary for our sake. Secondly, Christ suffered on Calvary rather than any other kind of death to fulfill all the types and pictures found in the Old Testament. And, and who was responsible for all those types and pictures in the Old Testament? God was. So God wanted us thinking from the beginning of time, starting with Adam and Eve, that there was one coming who would die on a tree for the sins of his people. This is what was promised in Genesis 3.15. Immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, God promised them that he would supply a savior to die on a tree. So think about this with me. Types and pictures. These Old Testament pictures, stories, characters, things that remind us of the cross, that remind us of... of of uh, forgiveness that remind us of God's love and, and there's thousands of them some more um, known than others but the sacrifices are front and center when it comes to types and pictures all the sacrifices in the temple or in the tabernacle were what was done with them their blood was spilt and then the priest lifted them up and put them on the altar. They were lifted up. Does that ring a bell to you, Christian? Yes. In Numbers 21, verse 9, we read that the bronze serpent was lifted up onto a pole, just as the sacrifices for out, throughout all Jewish history were lifted up onto the altar, so this bronze serpent was lifted up onto a pole that all who looked at it would be saved from their poisonous snake bite. Then Jesus comes along in John, in John chapter 13, verse 14, explains that the Son of Man was going to need to be lifted up to save his people. And so his suffering 
because of these types, his suffering on Calvary and everything surrounding that had to be intentional. It wasn't random. It wasn't by mistake. It was of great value with eternally good results. Because God is an eternally good God. Thirdly, Jesus suffered on the cross because of Old Testament prophecy. It's almost like someone's in charge of this. He's painting types and pictures. He's making prophecy concerning the things of the death of his son, Jesus Christ, for the eternal well-being of his people. He suffered on the cross because of Old Testament prophecy. Let me read for you two of the hundreds. Psalm 22, 16 and 17. This was about 1,500 years before Jesus died. This was written. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Now, what might that mean? Since I, 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 I don't want to, you know, denigrate your intelligence, I'll just leave it at that. How about this one? Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look upon me, it's God speaking. <laughs> when they look upon me, on him whom they have pierced, God is saying this in the Old Testament before it happened. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for over a firstborn. Friends, this is all over the Old Testament. These kind of prophecies concerning the coming death of the Messiah, of God's solution to sin and chaos. So that is what he suffered and why he suffered. Now, what does his suffering secure? In other words, what benefit is it to me? Yes, it was horrific. I see God's point and the supporting of his meticulous sovereign plan in accomplishing these things, but what did his suffering secure for me this morning? Let's begin with this. Did Jesus suffer greatly on the cross? Yes, it was greater than anyone else has ever suffered. And if we understand why, then there is no doubt that our sins are forgiven. The reason that Jesus suffered on Calvary and leading up to Calvary the way he did is to secure your forgiveness of sin. There's one massive benefit for you sitting here this morning if you're a sinner. If you're not, this doesn't apply to you. And by the way, there's no doubt that our sins are forgiven, and not just the sins of the nice people in this room or the nice people in this world, but all the sins of the worst people in this room and the worst people in the world. Because of the intensity and the level to which Jesus suffered, 
Think of the greatest sinner you know. It might be the person looking in the mirror. I don't know. And then think of all that Christ suffered. All the things just in this brief survey that I've had this morning with you. Think of all the sufferings that he went through. Um, and ask the question, was his suffering sufficient to appease the wrath of God? What else might God want to placate, appease, propitiate his wrath? Is there a greater extent to which you could suffer maybe? Unlikely. That process of thinking removes all doubt of God's willingness to forgive all the sins of the worst people. And there's doctrinal support for this all over the Bible, but I'm going to share for you two from the New Testament. Colossians 1, 14 and 1 John 1, 7. Guarantees us that our sins are forgiven. Listen to this, Colossians 1, 14. In whom we have, that is, whom? Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Inspired writing by the Holy Spirit of God, through the pen of Paul. And then through the Apostle John in 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, that's evidence of being saved, we have fellowship with one another and here we go, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Guarantees that the suffering of Christ paid the penalty for your sin, securing your forgiveness. How do we know these things are true? Let me ask you to think with me on this. First of all, there is more than enough value, theologians call it efficacy, effectiveness. There is more than enough efficacy or value in the suffering and blood of Christ spilt to atone and wash away the greatest of sins. In other words, he sinned enough to cover your sin. He, he, he suffered enough to cover your sins. Keep in mind how Peter described the blood of Christ in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 that we read earlier. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, here was, here's where you underline, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Precious blood of Christ. It was Christ's blood that was spilt, not just any blood, not the blood of just a goat, a heifer, or a lamb, or even a great person. No, Christ's untainted blood ran through his perfect veins. The second person of the Godhead took on flesh, and that flesh was kept alive by the flow of blood in his veins and arteries. That blood, the perfect blood of the God-man, ran down that tree. Acts 20, verse 28. Paul said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. He's exhorting the elders of Ephesus to be careful to be good shepherds. And he says, to care for the church of God, this church which God obtained, God obtained with his own blood. 
It's divine blood. It's human divine blood. Paul said it was God's blood. That's why your sins are forgiven. God's blood ran down the tree. And not only did his blood secure the forgiveness of our sins, but it secured reconciliation between us and our creator. That thing that was disrupted in the Garden of Eden, that thing that you were born into, that disruption, that that alienation that you experienced before you came to Christ by faith, Christ's blood solved, resolved. Colossians 1.20, and through him, that is through Jesus Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or on heaven. So he's, the, Jesus somehow reconciled everything, and this verse is going to tell us how. Making peace, that's how you reconcile, you make peace. How did he do it? By the blood of his cross. That blood, that perfect blood that ran down that tree was Christ's blood. And with that shedding of blood, he forgave your sins and reconciled you to your creator. Just like a well-lit room casts no shadows, so the value of Christ's blood leaves no sin unforgiven, friend. If Christ's blood satisfies God, it must satisfy every guilty conscience. No conscience can demand more than God demands. Are you resisting to receive the forgiveness offered in the blood of Christ because of some pride that you're holding on to in your life? Well, God can't forgive that. Oh, it can't, huh? The blood of Christ can't forgive your heinous sin. Really? So you're greater than the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary, if you believe that. That's blasphemy, by the way. If Christ's blood satisfies God, it better satisfy you. (laughs) Right? Secondly, there is more than enough value in the suffering and blood of Christ, not only to atone for sin, but to atone for the greatest guilt over sin. Are you feeling guilty about some past sin or some ongoing struggle with sin? Friends, listen. There is more than enough value in the suffering and blood of Christ to atone for the greatest guilt. This is God's design and desire. God designed the suffering of Jesus and his spilt blood to accomplish all our joyful salvation. To get rid of all guilt that keeps you from rejoicing. He desires that we who have embraced Jesus as our Savior and Lord be released of all of our guilt for our sin and live in joyful confidence every day. Not pouting around like Eeyore about how great his sin is. No. If you are burdened by guilt and lack joy in your Christian life, the cause of that is a misunderstanding of the depth of God's love for you and the extent of the value of Jesus' sufferings. That is it and only it. I'm going to say it again. If you're burdened by guilt over some past sin or some current struggle 
with sin, or you lack joy in your Christian life, it is because of a misunderstanding of the depth of God's love for you and the extent or the depth of the value of Christ's sufferings. Think a little bit more about what Christ went through and see if it doesn't grow joy in your soul. The preciousness of the blood of Jesus was designed to carry some weighty concerns. Listen to this amazing verse in Acts 13. Paul was speaking. And by Jesus, everyone who believes, listen, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. You think if you take a whip and lash yourself a few more times, you might be feeling better about some past sin? Not hardly. And by Jesus and his sufferings and his blood, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which the law of Moses could not free you from. So, let me take you back into the Old Testament again to try to get you up to speed when it comes to joy in the Christian life and freedom from guilt in the Christian life. Remember the Old Testament sacrifices. I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. The Old Testament sacrifices were intended to pardon the sins of the sinner, right? That's what they were intended to do. And release them from the guilt of sin. And how was that accomplished? How did God intend to accomplish a pardon for sin and a release from guilt? It required hands. Hands of the sinner. Hands of the one who actually did the sin. The hands that stole. The hands that fought. The, the, the hands that mistreated the hands that represented all the sins of these people bringing sacrifices were required to be placed on the head of the sacrifice. So if you had gotten a big blowout with your spouse and you felt like you needed to be forgiven for that or choose whatever sin that you'd like, you were required to bring an animal and when to be sacrificed. And while the animal was having its throat slit, its innocent blood spilt, you were required to place your hands on that, signifying the transfer of your guilt to that animal. Your sins were being transferred to the animal, the innocent one, while its throat was being slit. So that that animal would take your sin and it would, this animal's death would release you from the guilt of what you had done. <laughs> what a picture for us. It was a confirm of pardon and an assurance of no guilt remaining. So burdened friends in this room, pay close attention here. God's design is that you lay your hands on Christ 
and receive the same pardon from sin and guilt as those Old Testament saints received when they sacrificed their animals by faith. What sin lingers in your heart and mind that causes you sadness, that impedes your joy, that continues your guilt? Think of it this way. Would God demand satisfaction for our sin from the suffering and death of his own son, who is the guarantee of God's satisfaction, and then turn around and demand it from you again? Would God say, I must send my son to cross to suffer for your sin, and then you're going to pay me more later? No. No. Here's Paul's answer, Romans 8, 34. Who, including you, is going to bring any charge against God's elect? You have something you want to complain to God about? Your sin? Or someone else's sin, maybe? Listen to this. God, who, the one who was offended, God is the one who justifies. <laughs> who is to condemn? Who out there could possibly condemn you? Maybe God? Well, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. God accepted the suffering of Christ, the spilt blood of Christ, to cover each and every one of your horrific sins, past, present, and future, and release you from the guilt. If you don't know this, friends, the gospel is a command to believe. So stop wallowing in your guilt. Do you believe the gospel or not? It's a command to believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is not a suggestion. It's a command. And what are you believing? That in the suffering and death of Jesus, your sins are forgiven and your guilt is released. That's what you're believing. Have you believed the gospel? God no longer holds anything against anyone who comes to Christ by faith. Jesus' suffering and death is God's idea to solve our sin and guilt problems. Listen to John Flavel, long gone Puritan, as he responded to the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. He said, Oh, what a joyful sound is this! What ravishing voices of peace, pardon, grace, and acceptance come to our ears from the blood of the cross. The greatest guilt that ever was contracted upon a trembling, shaking conscience can stand before the efficacy, that's value, of the blood of Christ no more. Any more than a sinner himself can stand before the justice of the Lord with all the guilt upon him. It is over, Flavel is saying. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant it. 
Sun Valley Church, believe the Bible when it says that no matter what you have been or what you are or what sins you struggle with, you have been completely and eternally washed away with the blood of Jesus Christ. All these things that condemn your soul, that bring on guilt, that rob you of joy, have been paid for and taken away by Christ. So live like it. Christians should be the happiest people on the planet. It is a bad testimony to see a sullen Christian. And, and it makes you wonder whether or not they understand the gospel. Oh, me and my sin. Oh. What don't you understand about the gospel? 1 Timothy 1, 13 and 16. Paul was a fairly notorious sinner. He thought he was the greatest of sinners. Listen to what he said to Timothy. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, the foremost of sinners, the number one sinner on the planet, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who believe in him for eternal life. If, he, if it works for Paul, the planet's number one sinner just might work for you. So, what is it, what sin has robbed you of joy, caused you guilt? Is it lust, sexual sin, either past or ongoing? Is it greed, pride, murder, anger, abuse, bitterness, dishonesty, betrayal? What? Bring one up. The gospel said it's gone. Right? Isaiah says that God throws it into the deepest sea. So the gospel isn't true unless it can handle the worst of sins. There's more, thirdly, there is more than enough value in the blood of Christ to take away the sting of death. So, to keep these thoughts organized in front of you, how do we know that these promises are true that Scripture speaks of? It's because of this, number one, that there is more than enough value in the suffering blood of Christ to atone and wash away the greatest of sins. There's more than enough um, value in the sufferings and blood of Christ to atone for the greatest guilt. And then thirdly here, there is um, more than enough value in the blood of Christ to take away the sting of death. This is the slam dunk. If there's anything that haunts our future, it's the prospect of death, wouldn't you say? At least that's the way it used to be before we came to Christ. And I, I want to admit it, it still holds some of its pain, but none of its curse. Death no longer destroys, Christian friend. Death no longer is the end. There is now no need to fear death. Because there's more than enough value in the blood of Christ to take away that sting associated with death. That all of death's poison was poured out on Christ. There's no poison left. He took the curse of death for us who put our hope and trust and faith in him. 
This is why I can say that death is harmless to all believers. It is actually our friend. Death is. Since the curse is gone by the way of Christ taking that away for us, all that death brings is blessing. First Corinthians 3, 22 and 23, listen to this. And pay close attention to the details. Whether Paul or Apollos, or Cephas or the world, or life or death, or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God. These are all meant to be blessings. Paul listed this as a list of blessings. Let me read the list of blessings to you again. Paul, Apollos, Peter, the world, life, or death. All are yours. Hey, let's have a party. Death is yours, is what Paul was saying. <laughs> That's counterintuitive, isn't it? I can handle maybe Paul, Paul, and Cephas, and the world, and life, but death? It's on the list. Paul speaks as if it is a gift to those whose sins have been forgiven. It is a gift all because of Christ's sufferings. Again, next week, I will speak about the sufferings of Christ's followers. What it is that we suffer and the point behind it. And you will see, I'll circle back around and, and pick up some of the points that I've just mentioned concerning Christ. But Christian friend, uh, suffering is not an enemy, as we might think of it. It's actually an ally. And not only because of the sufferings of Christ, but because of what God takes each of us through. So let's pray and thank God for these things together. Father, for the gift of salvation, for the plan of redemption, for sending of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, um, so that we might have the forgiveness of sin, the release of guilt, will take an eternity for us to thank you, to be praising you over and over. We now lift up our voices and our hearts towards you and acknowledge these wonderful gifts we receive in the sufferings and death of Christ. Uh, we acknowledge at times we let our myopic short-sightedness um, blur our vision of what is true. We, we allow our circumstances to interfere with our understanding of the gospel. We, we believe the lies of the enemy that would tell us that we're undeserving and there's no way that God could or would forgive a miserable wretch like me. And yet, we've read it this morning. From the pen of those you inspired to communicate these wonderful truths, these most glorious truths that are known to mankind about what you offer those who will simply come to Christ by faith. If there is anyone in the room this morning, Holy Spirit, I pray that at this moment you would dive deep into their soul, grab their very being, their essence, and 
convince them of the love of God in Christ Jesus, convince them of the gospel that declares freedom from guilt and forgiveness of sin and nothing but a glorious future to look forward to. Do this, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for your glory and for the good of every person in this room. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.